From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Just a note before we get started, it's our 10th season of Frankly Speaking, and it's time to thank the folks at Dryject who have been with us from the very beginning. I've been an advocate of Dryject services because I've seen the results, how it improves performance, and maximizes productivity by aerating, top dressing, and amending in a single pass. Don't take my word for it. Check them out at dryject.com. It is a great joy to be starting our 10th year here on Frankly Speaking and being produced here at Rep Studios with my colleague and producer, Nate Richardson. It's been a joy the last four or five years of us working together. And one of the things I've enjoyed about doing this work is that I've had a few regulars. My guest for the beginning of this 10th year, somebody celebrating his 10th year, the mindful superintendent from Fox Meadow Golf Club up in Stratford, Prince Edward Island, Paul McCormick. Paul, welcome back to the program. Happy anniversary to you. Thank you so much, Frank. Happy to be here. And it was so nice recently to spend some time with you at the BTME Continue to Learn over in Harrogate last week. And lots to learn about while we were there. And I want to get to that. But before we do, I want to talk about this wonderful blog post that you wrote about your 10th anniversary of doing it. Particularly focus on things where you took time to reflect, right? When you hit a milestone... You know, one of the things that happens, I just turned 60, you start to reflect, right? And I'm wondering Mm. when you pick out just the things you reflect on or equally the value of reflection, I wonder if you couldn't talk for a minute about that. Yeah, it was interesting. The 10th anniversary thing kind of snuck up on me and I, I didn't even really realize it until I just happened to glance at the date and happened to think about, you know, it's been a while since I've been writing these articles and writing this blog and Then when I check back in the timeline, and it was in fact 10 years ago, and I think it was the first week of January that Peter gave me the opportunity to write the first blog posts for the Mindful Superintendent. And yeah, it's been an amazing journey. It it really has thus far. I like to think in my mind that that's kind of the start of the second half of the greenkeeping journey for me. The first half was a lot of learning and a lot of grinding. And it's still been a very learning-oriented career and grinding by times, but hopefully a lot better than it was the first half. Well, that's a bit the difference between when you're in it and you're in the grind and when you're through it and you get some perspective, right? Wouldn't you say that's the space where the mindfulness sort of exists, where you can get your arms, so to speak, around it? feel like you're observing it, not just feeling it. Even when it's a grind, you're aware it's a grind. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about sort of giving the space for the mindfulness in there? Yeah, I I think you hit it right in the head. I think so often we we live in a life of distraction and, and just head down and full throttle, and we don't pause often enough to afford ourselves the space sometimes to take a different view or to capture a different perspective. And and as you mentioned, you can still work hard and you can still be in it by times, but you can extract yourself from it a little better and, and your, your ability to step back and, and your ability to give when you need to give, but to also rest after the fact. That's really the biggest gift for me from the mindful perspective. Part of what you touched on in that answer is implicit in that is sometimes we've got to unlearn things. And I know you said it's been a knowledge journey for you, and certainly you have experienced a lot and interacted with people now, you know, literally all over the world, Paul. 
unlearning seems to be uh, as important. And particularly when you think about our industry, maybe we weren't cultured right uh, in the places that we worked. And maybe we are creating a relentless grind working environment or maybe we learn something in our relationships with folks. Can you talk a little bit about stuff you've unlearned? Yeah, I think principally the biggest thing collectively that I think we've moved toward and and maybe still have a ways to go to unlearn is just, as you said, just that whole notion that we have to grind ourselves to dust to do this. And there's no job in the world worth that kind of relentlessness. And Letting things go and or just letting concepts in your mind of how things have to be, just even just letting them be for a while, it can really create that space you mentioned earlier. And it really does give you a lot more freedom in how you navigate your days. And it doesn't mean you do your job to a lesser degree or, or you're just affording yourself a bit more time, a bit more space. And a bit more flexibility to to look at some of the things that you might have held as gospel or sacrosanct in your career up till this point. And, and maybe maybe they just don't serve anymore. Maybe they, they helped you at one time in your career or they formed some sort of protective barrier for you. But really at this stage in your life, they, they don't serve the same purpose. And it can be maybe just time to set them aside. And one of those things pervasive, I think, just in traditional male gender cultures like I was raised, now these things are changing, you know, before our eyes, but there seems to be a lot more room for men to be vulnerable and not, you know, John Wayne all the time. And I'm wondering uh, from your perspective about vulnerability and how that's been over these 10 years of being the world's renowned mindful superintendent, by the way. Yeah, world renowned might be a stretch, but <laughs> vulnerability, it gives people permission. It gives them permission to be human. And, and that's the one thing I've noticed more than anything, because I decided a long time ago in my journey through writing and through speaking that the only way it was going to work is I had to lay it all out and I had to be as vulnerable and as honest as I could be about my situation. And by times that ebbs and flows still, I still struggle with it sometimes, but I have noticed up until this stage, when you can stand up in front of people and when you can share and when you can be vulnerable and honest, they all of a sudden have permission to be the same. And and that opens a portal or a door within themselves that they can start to explore and to reflect. And, and then they can even feel safe enough to speak and, and safe enough to connect with you and safe enough to talk in front of others and, and share their stories. And, and really, once that happens, and once you accept that permission and follow through on it, I think that's when the real deep connections occur. Because then everybody just remembers and realizes that we're just human beings. And, and we're all kind of going through same stuff. It's just, it occurs in different timelines and occurs at different points in our lives. But we all suffer and we all deal with stuff at some point. And keeping it in and keeping it bottled up and, and pretending it's not affecting us just does us no good in the long run. When you think about the kindness you need to be able to do that with other people, Taking care of yourself is also your way you uh, help the industry. So I wonder, part of your story early on, and I'm sure, you know, you still say, it's like, listen, I have my dream job and I got fired. And within a little while, I had to try to get back at it. And you had to unlearn, become vulnerable and not beat yourself to death as you took the new job. It had to include some kindness uh, and compassion for yourself. Uh, h- how did you do it? Practice. 
practice and more practice <laughs> and I still, and I still practice every day. It, yeah. it really is. It's one of those things where it's, it's never just a one and done thing with kindness and compassion, especially when it's directed inward because our mentalities and our default habits are, are so ingrained, especially when we get in stressful situations like losing your job or a traumatic family situation. They can rear their ugly heads even though you think they're long gone sometimes. And so, yeah, over the years, it's really just been coming back to that over and over and over again and starting over. And when you notice as you mentioned earlier, when you have that awareness that maybe the, you're moving a little far from the original intention or the original goal or process, you just gently kind of coax yourself back with some inner friendliness and some kindness and and start again the best you can. And, and really, that's been the crux of the journey of what it means to be a, a human being. Of course, you know, you took it well, but you are widely known. You have now traveled to places and interacted with folks and been able to have your experience and share that experience, right? A lot of what we just talked about is, you know, sort of your approach to these things. But now you've started to share it with everyone. Let's take a minute and reflect a little bit about sort of what you've learned in that sharing over these last, not just writing, but I think when did we meet in Moncton? Was it 15? Yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah. So what about what it's felt like to have your experience now amplified through the way you're sharing it? Yeah, it's an interesting perspective sometimes. And, and I'm sure anyone who is writing or sharing music or sharing any kind of art where you're kind of bearing your soul a bit, it is an interesting place to start from because it's part of the gift you offer people. And for me, no matter how many times you repeat the story, I, I think coming at it from a place of vulnerability and honesty and real truthfulness. To me, it allows that connection with everyone in the room and everyone who's reading. And And I've heard that time and time again over the last 10 years is just thank you and just gratitude for people being thankful that I was able to share and being thankful that I was able to, again, offer them the permission to see themselves in my story. Because again, my story is not unique. There's lots of people in this industry of have gone through similar circumstances and there's probably lots of people who have gone through far worse circumstances. But again, we realize, I think, as a collective in our community that it does us no good to just shove it down into our boots and kind of keep on rocking all the time. You, you have to pause and give it the space it needs and, and move through the process, whether you need to grieve, whether you need to heal or adjust or whatever it is, and just honor the fact that it's difficult sometimes. It really is. It, it doesn't mean you have to dwell in it or be mired in it, but you do have to give it the space it requires. And I think being able to talk to people and, and travel to speak with people and just having those quiet conversations after the fact, after a speech or after a talk or after a seminar and, and just allowing people the space to share their stories has been just incredibly rewarding. We are going to share. Uh, it's a shared experience, right? It's a shared experience in some ways that you you celebrate the highs together and, and they soften the low parts, right? That where everybody uh, goes through them sure. in one way, shape or form and giving ourselves space, which is what we got to do right now for uh, a minute. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with my pal Paul McCormick. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back.
I remember when here at Frankly Speaking, we were in need of another title sponsor a few years ago as the industry continued to contract. I was at a regional golf course superintendent association meeting and I had a chat with my longtime colleague, Tom Weiner, the VP of sales for the plant food company. Now, I'd gone a few rounds with Tom over the years during our early days at Beth Page and the two U.S. Opens and PGA events. I was pleased when Grant Platt said yes, and I'm still pleased to support the use of plant food products that are based on university research. Products and services is what set Plant Food Company apart. Meet with a plant food representative to see for yourself. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with my pal Paul McCormick, golf course superintendent and general manager at the Fox Meadow Club, which is, you know, doing really well. Like golf uh, around the travels I've made, even it looks like in England where we just were recently at the wonderful Continue to Learn conference that we did a full day together, that golf is booming in some places. And people are taking the time, spending the money. We know a recession might be coming, so we're bracing. But right now we're holding on to a pretty good size bump in play and and spending off the course. So all of this, while very good from a business perspective, Paul, I think I shared the experience with you on Sunday last week up in Harrogate that this has taken a toll on the workforce that provide those venues and care for those eating establishments and cut that grass and spray and wash and all those things. Where do you want to start this conversation? I'm a little bit open to it. Maybe we can start with, have you noticed some particular trends in behavior, patterns of behavior in the workforce? in the places you travel to, maybe even in other industries that might be like ours, that you might want to say, well, I I can at least diagnose something's up. Yeah, I mean, it is, like you said, a multifaceted and many-armed beast at the moment. And I'm sure we could do a whole series on just this one topic. What I've noticed probably the most recently is that people are generally not as okay as you think they are, or maybe even they're not as okay as they might think they are. Kind of the whiplash effect of this whole pandemic, I think, is just starting to catch up to people and and their well is maybe not as deep as it used to be. So I found a lot of people, their window of tolerance and their coping just isn't quite what it was before this all started. And again, like I mentioned earlier in talking about traumatic events, whether it be getting losing your job or having a traumatic family or personal event, we collectively have to give this space, I think. And I think everybody's rushing back to kind of make things exactly how they were before because we want to rush for that familiarity and that foundation, but it's just not there in a lot of places, especially going through the uncertainty and the lack of control over the last two years where we're kind of scrambling to get our feet back underneath us. But in lots of instances, it's just not happening. And really from a labor perspective, I think in a lot of the businesses I've consulted with over the last little bit and a lot of the golf courses I've talked to and people I've spoken with, I think the ones that didn't really have a plan and and weren't really treating people the way they needed to be treated before the pandemic, they're suffering simply because people don't want to be there anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they just don't feel the loyalty. They, they don't feel that they were ever cared for. They never felt safe. And so all of a sudden people are looking at their priorities and going, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. The pandemic made me realize I only have a certain amount of time here and I want to make better use of it. And then there's the whole flip side, as you mentioned, with the game of golf and certain businesses, they went the exact opposite way and they became incredibly busy. But there was a tax associated with that too, because we were trying to juggle what it meant 
meant to be human during a pandemic and a collective trauma like this, but then also doing our jobs, not just at the normal rep, but we were, we were 30, 40% busier than we normally were. So yeah, it's been a very complex time to be human and, and, and it's nothing new. I mean, throughout history, it, it's been no different during events like this, but I think this is just the one in our generation and in our lifetime that will leave the biggest mark. It's interesting because I I think if I could surmise it, that industry that, you know, everybody left and didn't want to go back to was the professional kitchen. Right. Professional kitchens and the hospitality industry that served the public. You didn't see people running back to those jobs. And you're seeing many businesses go and change the model to takeout only. We have a number of operations that have gone to takeout only. And partly what got my attention was the uh, Australian stuff that I've been reading lately. I have a lot of friends down under in Oz that I've had the pleasure of meeting on my multiple trips down there. And they have been nothing but just the most gracious hosts, you know, realizing, you know, it takes like a day and a half to get to the place from where I live. (laughs) So, Paul, when I think about what you described, and I know, you know, we had the opportunity to share these dinners recently in Harrogate, and we talked a little bit about trauma, Mm. right? This is something when you're not prepared, you know, it comes around, it's traumatic to the system. And, you know, we're not talking about, oh, you know, we're cowering in the corner. We're talking about something got really crazy to our species Mm -hmm. on this planet. And um, people were dying at a really rapid rate where I live, not far from where my family lives, and they were putting them in refrigerator cars. So if anybody thinks that if you saw that, like I saw it firsthand, you wouldn't be a bit traumatized by tractor trailers pulling up filled with refrigerators of dead people. Uh, It's a gruesome way to look at it, but this was uh, real trauma. Uh, I wonder your thoughts about that. And what are some of the signals like when you think about maybe PTSD? You know, do you have some idea about some of these signals you think about when we're trying to see if somebody we think might not be doing as good as they think they're doing? Yeah. And so much of especially our early experience with the pandemic, it it almost seemed like you were watching a movie and it was like a horror movie and watching the news and being able to quantify it and be able to process it. We had to keep reminding ourselves, no, no, this is actually real life. It may not be happening exactly where I am right now, but it won't be long. And I think one of the fundamental truths that you have to remember when you think about trauma is everybody starts from a different vantage point. And just because you may not see something as particularly traumatic in your life, somebody else who's starting at a place that doesn't occupy your space or privilege or vantage point in life, they don't have the tools or they may not have the support systems or they may not have the resourcing they need to be able to cope with things like this. And when you live in poverty, when you're a racialized minority, when you're disadvantaged in in many ways, things like a pandemic, the effects are tenfold, hundredfold. And and, and they really do have a a larger impact on those people within our society. So I think the people that were really struggling beforehand, well, they really, really struggled during and after the pandemic. And, And then I think there was a lot of people who probably maybe have never dipped their toe in or had any experience with uh, mental health difficulties before that all of a sudden find themselves in an unfamiliar territory. And and they're starting to deal with things like anxiety or depression. And really, I think when it comes to our standpoint as superintendents and course managers and, and leaders within our facilities, it really is up to us to find that 
that empathy and find that emotional intelligence, if you will, and, and try to connect with our staff and really ask the question, like, how are you doing? Are things okay? And if not, how can I help? Can I direct you in a, in a place that maybe you can find some help? In all of these things, as business managers and, and leaders right now, these are the most important things. If we don't start tending the flock and really tuning in and taking care of the people around us. It doesn't matter because there's not going to be anybody to work with. You. That's right. <laughs> and then the financial part doesn't mean anything because your business can't operate. So really, I think my sincere hope at the end of all this is that we open to a deeper sense of empathy and compassion for the people we work with and the people that we spend a great deal of our lives with. And it's hard to be engaged with your workforce on the kinds of topics we're discussing here when we're rewarded for putting our heads down and getting the work done. Right. I don't want to get involved. I can't, you know, I don't want to share these things. We just got to get this work done. And some of that, I wonder if it isn't what we talked about in the first segment where we were saying, you got to be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. How can you be benevolent and caring and compassionate with your workforce if you're not really like that with yourself? And is that a good diagnosis? <laughs> if you notice people not wanting to work with you, maybe you get better take care of yourself as well as learning how to manage the workforce. But doesn't it really emanate from sort of how you're taking care of yourself to some degree? I think it's the fundamental aspect of being a leader and being someone who can work with and, and being able to lead and manage people. If you don't know yourself, it's really hard to extend that to others. And you can try, but there, there's a gap. And there's a gap in knowledge and a gap in the way you relate to others. And people realize that. I think we don't necessarily give them enough credit sometimes. Um, people are pretty tuned into that type of thing. And when you, when you talk to people and they're like, oh, there's nothing I can do. I can't find people to work here. Nobody wants to work anymore. That's one of the telltale ones that you're like, no, that's not the case. <laughs> they don't want to work with you anymore. <laughs> right. There's lots of people that want to work and there's lots of people that are happy to work and find a whole lot of fulfillment and purpose in working. It's just you're not offering the space they need. That's the problem. And really, it can be such a difficult thing to accept, especially if you've coasted through a career and you've done things a certain way the whole time. And there's always been people to choose from and always been people there. And all of a sudden, they're not there. And all of a sudden, you have to really look in the mirror and go, oh, crap, maybe I'm playing a bigger role in this than I realized. And it, it's a hard lesson to learn sometimes. And you really have to be compassionate and kind to yourself and open to that fact when all of a sudden there's no one applying for things anymore. And I think there's also a reckoning, like you mentioned, the kitchen culture before. And I don't think we're any different in the turf side of things. We've created a system that was the accepted norm, but it just wasn't working. And it wasn't working for a long time, but we were just stuck in it. And it, it was really hard to extricate ourselves from it. And, and I managed a kitchen for for two years, a few years ago, and I saw it firsthand. I would not want to do it. And I wouldn't want any of my kids to do it. And all, and we live in a very tourist-based society here in Prince Edward Island with a lot of places like that that just expected people to give their lives up and grind themselves to dust just to stand in a kitchen and serve people. 
well, you know what? No one wants to do that. And there has to be a different approach and a different way. And I think as we move through the tail end of the virus and, and the pandemic into how we move forward, we just have to be open to different ways of doing things. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about how we have to make those changes with us, talk about it with our workforce. And even if you run a good operation, sometimes you have to make adjustments, right? And when you say being open to these adjustments, you still got to cut the grass, you know, in the morning before they play. Maybe it's you got to use more growth regulators because nobody's coming in mowing fairways on the weekend. Have you seen or had to make any adaptations in uh, in your operation or seen folks make? Like we were saying earlier, restaurants have gone to four-day weeks mm. or to takeout only. Those are major shifts in the way they offer their services. And part of it is because if people are going to do that work, that's the way they want to do it. Yeah. They're doing it the way they want to do it. And in a capitalist society, you can make money doing it, you can do it. So what about golf? What kind of adjustments do you see us able to make? Rake the bunkers less? Mow a little bit less? I... Well, I, yeah, I think my answer would be twofold. Like initially here at Fox Meadow, one of the big shifts we've made is to have more part-time people. We don't have as many full-time employees anymore. And where we would have operated with a crew of 10 to 12 full-time people, we now can have 15 to 17 full-time and the rest are part-time. And they only come in at six in the morning and they're gone by 10. And as a busy golf course that plows through upwards of 300 rounds a day, it actually just makes more sense. We we get the work done early and then we're just not in the way. And the golf course fills up. It's dangerous to be wandering around, yeah. <laughs> not keeping your head up. So we, we found with the younger kids, it's easier for them to do the work early in the day. They love being here. They get out of everybody's way and they're happier. They don't want to be here 50 hours a week. They're happy to be here 25 to 30 hours a week. And that's just how it works. Then the flip side of it is, and I think we spoke about this in a reflection on your work in terms of the environmental stuff and kind of just mentioned it now in, in terms of expectation. And that was one of the interesting parts of the visit to the UK was I was fortunate enough to stop at a golf course in Ireland called Port Marnock and speak with a course manager, Gary Johnson. He was kind enough to show me around and, and they managed 27 holes with 11 people and they mow the fairways once a week and they don't spray fungicides. And the place was neat as a pin and it was a beautiful facility. Yet it's just there's a shift in the expectation. And I think our expectations personally as superintendents and from a turf perspective have fueled the ridiculous expectations of the golfing public. And just because we can do things at a certain level, we haven't stopped to ask whether or not we should be doing things at that level and how sustainable it is to do them at that level constantly. And I mean, when you get to the highest level and you're producing tournament conditions, it's great to watch on television, but it hasn't really helped us as an industry, I don't think. And really, when you look at the UK model and, and the Lynx model of golf, it's a far more sustainable way of operating. We do far less and everyone just accepts it as how it is. And, and they're happy to play the game on those conditions. And I think the biggest thing I took away from visiting Port Marnock was how much they did do and, and how great the place was, even though they just didn't do a lot of things. And sometimes nothing's the hardest thing to do, but oftentimes it can be the best thing to do. <laughs> And that's, to me, the conversation now that to a certain extent, we have to be mindful of what people want. At the same time, what I like about tournament golf is it gives us the opportunity to discuss the different operations or the differences in the operation that a tournament golf course would have versus a daily fee sort of place, right? Resort courses, at least using the model that Doug Soldat, Michael Beck, and came up with recently at the UW-Madison is that resort courses really 
really are the most sustainable because they put through the most rounds of golf. So an operation like yours with members and with regular play where you got to have a good golf course for them to play, you're going to find out pretty quick if they don't like <laughs> what you're doing because, you know, people aren't going to show up. So I think it is an interesting conversation. It's about if you have a hard time answering questions about, wait, I just saw this tournament on TV or I played at this place. And boy, it's like this. And how come everybody's here now and it doesn't look as good now, Paul? Seems to me that's a perfect setup for you to draw the distinctions between the resources at one club, the land at one club. You know, you and I know op all operations are different. You know, it might be a, an exclusive club over there and yours might be sort of a different sort of budget and things like that. So I like the idea of being able to have that conversation and draw those differences and to speak to the way you run your operation and I think it speaks to the people we are right if you don't have any problem getting people coming to work for you do you not as a rule no okay so our rule now is we got to take our second break I'm Frank Rossi I'm with Paul McCormick uh, at Fox Meadow Golf Club at beautiful Prince Edward Island this is frankly speaking we'll be right back I had the chance to meet Ken Ross several years ago when Frost Brake Technology was just getting into the golf turf market. And like many of his fellow Minnesota natives, Ken and Frost Inc. had well-designed, innovative, and reliable technology, in this case, spray application technology. It's been a pleasure for me to advocate for the use of their products as I have seen how they perform. See for yourself by visiting them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with my pal Paul McCormick on the beautiful Prince Edward Island that if you ever want to feel jealous about anything I've done in my entire career, you can watch that video that Paul's brother made about our retreat on Prince Edward Island and you'll know how beautiful that place is. Now, we went to a pretty cool place recently, Paul, you and I over to continue to learn in the BTME in Harrogate and had a lovely time and I got to watch you in action. We did a seminar together and one of the things that resonated with me was um, some of the tools you talked about. Even if you don't meditate or you don't take those moments to breathe or you're not used to it, there's little micro tools you can develop and use that can help you get through those 90 seconds, right? Can you take a minute and talk a little bit about what role these tools play in maybe a mindful approach to living and what some of these tools are? Sure. Yeah, I would echo your sentiments on our excursion across the pond. Just an honor to be there, but an honor to be giving a seminar, co-presenting with you as well. And such a wonderful group that was so willing to share and so willing to participate and engage in what we were doing. And I was almost a bit surprised because that was some new territory for me doing the experiential mindfulness and, and really presenting some of these tools that people, if they're uncomfortable with the whole idea of sitting and meditating and really tuning out, how do you dip your toe in? What are some tools... All sorts of different things for different applications. And, and I think some of these small applicable tools, it's really all about a pause. So often when we're stressed, we're not grounded. We're not in the moment at all. We're, we're off fretting about what's happening. We're worried about what we did, terrified of what's to come. And we're not here in the moment. And these smaller tools give us the opportunity to do is just interrupt that train, give us a moment to recalibrate. 
studies show you can change your neurobiology and, and you can change the way your brain works. And that's the beauty of these things. And I think offering these small tools give people a glimpse into the idea that you don't need to meditate for an hour on a cushion. We talked about just simply breathing. Lots of times the breathing is the first thing to go. <laughs> Yeah. We almost don't even realize we're not breathing. Then, I mean, another big component of some of the tools we talked about was just energy. Anything you can do from like a physical exercise standpoint, or we talked about just the whole idea of dancing or shaking, get rid of that excess energy and allow it to leave your body and give yourself a chance to reset. Just something simple like going for a walk can really clear your mind, can really reset and recalibrate your nervous system. And give yourself that space you need to to kind of make sense of what's going on. I know we talked about music when we were there. Mm -hmm. You talked about walking. You talked about breathing and tracing your hand. Am I missing any before we get to the box? Well, I think one of the other ones was the soft belly breathing. Ah, yes. Deep inhale and then softening your belly on the exhale. And when you engage in not only that technique, but, but other deep breathing techniques, it sends chemicals and signals within your brain and within your body that you're not in danger. And things are okay. So often when we get wound up, we, we go back to that primate version of our brain where it's all fight or flight and we need to be on guard for the danger that's imminent. And that can be helpful by times, but if it doesn't shut off, that's when it gets problematic. These techniques, they just help us shut it off. And again, it can be as simple as three to five minutes of breathing. And I think you referred to one of the most common techniques that's used. It's simply called box breathing. You're inhaling for the count of four, you're holding for the count of four, you're exhaling on the count of four, and then pausing on the count of four. And that is one version of it. You can use different increments depending on how comfortable you are holding your breath or pausing or doing any of these things. You can extend it to seven or eight counts. And just doing that kind of breathing intentionally for a minute or two can really go a long way to bringing you into the present moment. And so as a gift to our listeners who are hanging there for the entire episode, Paul, why don't we get out of here and say goodbye on a uh, box breathing? How about we do it for four seconds? Sure. And then we'll say goodbye. Sounds good. All right. Well, if anyone is listening and they'd love to participate in this exercise, you can just simply sit upright in your chair, maybe place both feet on the floor and just rest your hands comfortably and just take a deep intentional inhale on the count of four. So inhale, one, two, three, four. Now hold at the top, two, three, four, and exhale. One, two, three, four, and pause at the bottom. One, two, three, four. And you can continue to breathe in the count of four as long as you need to. Use this tool anytime through the day. Riding on the subway, driving in your car, waiting in line for the groceries, or changing pins. You can use these small tools at any time during the day just to bring yourself into the present moment and, and give yourself a rest. Paul, what a joy. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me about this and leading us through this stuff. Really appreciate you doing it. Great seeing you last week, too. It was a joy, Frank. Thanks so much for inviting me today. Paul McCormick, General Manager, Golf Course Superintendent at the Fox Meadow Golf Club on Prince Edward Island. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. 
Big thanks to Paul McCormick, the mindful superintendent and general manager and golf course superintendent at the Fox Meadow Golf Club on Prince Edward Island. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.